Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cyberdelia. This is Dave. This is Mo. Well, geez, Mo, what are we talking about today? Uh, I think we're going to talk about learning stuff, sort of the... deliberate practice. Is that right? Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about deliberate practice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Why would we want to, David? Why would you want to practice? Well, there's lots of reasons to practice, one of which is just you don't want to be fooling yourself and thinking you know something, and it turns out you actually don't know it, and you find out in the worst way possible. So there's lots of ways that can that can play out. I've seen that play out in interviews where people were, you know, very sure that they they understood Linux, and then they had no understanding of Linux. It turns out. I'll get into that a bit, but. I, I guess besides just uh, talking about Dunning Kruger, uh, we we can talk about ways of actually uh, possibly addressing those sorts of things. So one thing we can start off with is uh, uh, the idea of koans. Uh, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, but we'll see. So yeah, I've heard it called cones or cone. I'm not sure the correct pronunciation, but the spelling is K-O-A-N. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. So this conversation kind of started from a blog post that you wrote. And in that blog post, we were talking about that trap that you could fall into uh, mm-hmm. where you get you know, enough sufficient experience in your career that you start to think you know things. And perhaps you're in a bit of a bubble or the echo chamber where uh, your environment may amplify that belief that you know more than you actually do. And so I think what we're talking about is is making sure we build in deliberate practice so we can challenge those assumptions and make sure that we're actually getting uh, the type of growth necessary to identify lacks or gaps mm-hmm. in our knowledge. And so, yeah, take it away. What's a koan? So a koan is, it's taken from the Zen tradition, but um, I've seen it mostly used in programming as a way of you do a test and that demonstrates whether you actually understand this concept. Um, and so th- I think the first thing I, I saw this on, um, th- there might be predecessors, but uh, well, I mean, there sort of is, but Ruby Cohen's. So the idea was you would run a test suite and you had to make all the tests pass. And how you uh-huh. made those tests pass was actually through and fixing little Ruby problems. And it was actually in that you'd start to understand, ah, OK, this is how you properly deal with uh, control flow in Ruby. This is how you can do certain operations. Um, So if I get this right, there would be a project with a bunch of tests already set up in the project, and they'd be testing some some particular target subject or class or object. And in order for you to progress through the tests, you have to get one test passing, then the next test passing. So you don't necessarily modify the test, but you have to actually modify the target code to be able to make that test pass, right? And that's the mm-hmm. progression, I, right? Okay. That's the progression. And I mean, there's also other ways you could approach it. Uh, one way that I, I've heard on another podcast, and the name's failing me now, was they had taken the Ruby Cohen's and they monkey patched Ruby so that all, all the failing tests passed, but not by modifying the tests themselves. So they would have to define true as false and um, all sorts of other... <laughs> All sorts of other things you should not do with Ruby, but uh, but you can. Um, so it shows you or highlights the power of Ruby when you can manipulate it that way. Mm-hmm. 
it's a nice way of actually figuring out all all those little edge cases that you may not hit in your day to day programming, but you know it might be a question mark. You might not have even known it was a question mark, and so I, I've used these to great effect. Um, for learning Go, I did a set of Go Coens, and yeah, you start figuring out those little bits that you can certainly look up every time you hit, you know, a, a dead end. But that's a really inefficient way to learn a language. Instead, it's just front load it, learn all those little snags right up front, really, really get that understanding of the the tiny bits, and then you don't stumble over those. Well, nearly as much uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about the the idea of having tests to back up that knowledge is that as you write something and get it passing, you also have the opportunity to improve on that knowledge. So if you find a more optimal way to write the the result or uh, another part of the standard library that can help with actually uh, getting the test to pass, you can refactor, and you're supported by the tests in in that learning. So. You can see whether it's working and you get that instantaneous feedback. I love that idea. And once you've sort of gotten past that, an, another way you can sort of do a deliberate practice with that knowledge you've, you've now just sort of uh, wrestled from the Cohen's is uh, what's called a code kata, um, kata. Hmm. which comes, I, I believe it's a term from the martial arts. Um, but the idea is that you're just doing these practices. And so the idea is that you're essentially writing code that you plan to throw away. So, for example, write a uh, decimal to a Roman numeral uh, calculator, you know, uh, those yeah. sorts of things. The exercise comes from actually just hashing it out. I, even just something as simple as FizzBuzz, if you're doing that on your own time as a way to make sure that you you understand the concepts, that's a good kata. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I heard of this idea, it was from Dave Thomas. I think he ha- he maintained a website of different kata problems for targeting mm-hmm. different types uh, of uh, problem sets. For example, if you're learning OO, there'd be a set of different domain problems around calculating sales tax or being able to do some sort of forecasting of future price curves, etc. So taking different domains and and being presented with the problem so that you can try to solve it in different ways, but it's the same problem. And, and then at each time you try to solve that problem, uh, you can bring in the new experience or new ideas, whether it's influenced by functional programming or object-oriented programming or testing out different ideas, but to solve that problem and improve on how you can solve that problem, which gives you like a wider uh, array of solutions uh, that you can draw from when you actually encounter real-life problems that are similar to that. I mean, an analogy here also is uh, the idea of practicing scales on a piano or another musical instrument. So say you're picking up a language again for the first time in, you know, five, six years. Uh, You don't want to just jump into some big, gnarly code base. I mean, you (laughs) you certainly can. But a way to sort of shake the rust off is just doing little practice exercises like these that you aren't wrestling with the idea itself. the idea can be one you've done, you know, countless times. It's just a practice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I remember back in the day, I don't know if this is still true, but ThoughtWorks had this thing called the OO boot camp. Uh, so all new hires were supposed to go through this OO boot camp. And the boot camp takes you through this series of OO exercises. It was around this problem called movie library. 
So you'd have this library full of movies, and each movie had different traits related to studio or name. And so you would approach uh, your filtering and sorting and adding things to the library. And this was sort of the guide. This was the tool or, or sort of the problem set to work you through different types of OO solutions. So I take that and I still apply that today. So when I was learning Ruby, I applied <laughs> movie library to Ruby and same with CoffeeScript. And then I recently did it with Golang. So it's like I understand the problem fairly well. And there isn't a single cookie cutter solution. It's a matter of taking that problem, rewriting the tests and the in the language that I want to learn and then finding out how to actually make it pass. And, and I find a lot of times that's when I learn how to read the documentation. And if it means I have to jump to a browser too many times, uh, I stop and I say, how do I use this GoDoc thing? Or how do I use RI so that I can cut down on that context switching? And that way, hopefully when it comes to like game time, uh, I won't know the answers, but I'll have at least enough muscle memory to know how to look them up locally on my terminal and uh, and go from there. So I found that has been like my go-to kata for uh, learning something new. I don't know if it uh, really stretches me in all the different areas necessary to learn a language, but it typically hits things like how do I do conditional logic? How do I filter? How do I uh, how do I just like iterate through an array or a slice? And uh, and that's usually enough to at least hit the core parts of the standard library to see what's there, or just get it working without the standard library, and then. Over time, uh, as you discover things in the standard library, start start going back to the, the kata and rewriting it using that. Um, so I love just having that as a go-to mm-hmm. for starting something new. Another sort of variation of that, um, as you said, and how you try to optimize the solution, There, there's also the idea of code golf, which oh. has played out in a few ways. Um, and right. I mean, this was a an exercise Vim that golf. was... Yeah, you'd see that for learning Vim of... How do you do this operation in the fewest amount of keystrokes? It's funny. There, it's just applying that constraint to the to a problem makes you think differently about solving it. And the different variations of solving it, I think, is what enriches or creates that sort of creative thinking. Because there isn't a single solution to every problem. There's many different ways you can solve it. And it's that creative thinking and exercising that creative portion of your mind. That's the key. I think that's the benefit of of doing these katas. It's not uh, just getting it right and moving to the next thing. It's taking the time to work through it with a slightly different constraint and hopefully arriving with a different solution each time you do it. Mm-hmm. And the benefit I find with like code golf and Vim golf is sometimes you just notice that someone has a score higher than you. <laughs> and that I actually find that's really good. Um, I, yeah. There's one game uh, called Tiz 100 where there's a bit of a code golf type um, uh, way of playing it. Once you know someone's gotten a more efficient solution, gosh, you want to find it. Um, yes. And that's that's really good. It, it sort of uh, pushes you to self-improvement because in the same way that no one could run a, uh, you know, under a five minute mile until someone broke it. And then all of a sudden this was a common thing. Yes. You just need someone to show you that it is possible. Um, and then you can start to believe that you can break the, the boundaries of what people consider as the limits of our abilities today. This reminds me of a, an experience several years ago when I was trying to improve some of my algorithmic knowledge. I found this site called CodeFights.com. So you go to CodeFights and it's like a series of tech problems or programming problems, like algorithmic, functional, etc. And I remember when you finish the problems, you could choose the language of choice to solve the problem in. But when you finish the problem, got it solved, and it, it it passes all the tests under a certain threshold of time, you could go and, like, see the other people's solutions. 
And I remember like after doing it long enough, I would I would tend to follow certain people because I just love their solutions. Um, I think there was this one uh, user BCC32, something like that, who would do uh, the programming problems in Ruby as well. And I'd look at their solutions and I sometimes it would just, I couldn't understand what was going on. And so I'd sit there and I'd, I'd take their, their solution and I'd try to build it. I'd reverse engineer, I'd rip it apart. And, and then it allowed me to think about and see things differently. And I love being able to explore that idea and sort of get into their head and work backwards from where they ended up to to the start. And I every time I solve the problem, I got to the point where I do is I go look at that person's solution because <laughs> I was like, I have to see how I think it was BCC 32 did it. Uh, that was my that was my uh, sort of upper bound in that competition to see who who can I chase. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's like getting to pair program with a whole bunch of people. Um, yeah. And because you all understand the exact same task, there's so many apples to oranges things in programming. It's nice when everyone is sort of working on the same thing, because then you see just how many different ways there are to, you know, skin the cat, as it were. Yeah. And, and another example, I'm just looking up at the paintings on my wall. So our family, we've got four folks in our family, my uh, partner and I and our two children. We do. We haven't done it recently, but we were in pre-COVID doing a paint night as a family together. So we'd have like a target painting that we would all try to paint together. But when you see the final result, they'd all look drastically different. You know, it's the same general idea and theme, but we all have our own flair, our own style to it. And it was nice to observe the different style and see that style sort of move from one painting to another. And I think that applies to code as well. Like code is is very scientific, but it's also very artistic um, to me. And so when I look at code that reads like prose, that like as soluble, I can read the intent that makes me really chuckle or smile inside that delights. It's its own form of art. And there's nothing more pleasing than reading like a beautiful piece of art and being able to contribute back to it. And I mean, it doesn't always have to be um, something where you're trying to, um, come up with the most efficient one. There are Mm -hmm. are some sites where it's just, can you actually show that you understand the concept? Um, And one that comes to mind is uh, Hacker Rank, where, uh, okay, can you actually prove that you know Ruby? And and, I mean, there's some pitfalls to that approach, uh, which we'll get into later, but uh, it's hard to often show sort of competence in a subject and having something that really tries to poke at uh, your different subjects of knowledge uh, to see where you're, you know, a little fuzzy on things or where you're really strong. It's nice to have uh, an exhaustive set of exercises. Uh, Yeah. And I think that in our careers as well, like you don't always get the opportunity to actually uh, design a system architecture. Right. So when you get into like interview situations and they're asking you questions about uh, like the system design interviews, typically they're trying to stretch you and see, like, how would you design a system? Well, if you haven't had enough practice doing it, then it's really hard to like answer questions on the fly and think about it from different perspectives, because uh, I'd say that like in industry, it's quite rare where you get a lot of opportunity to make those sort of impactful decisions. And so as an individual, it's up to you to take the decisions that, you know, your organization might have and still, you know, take those designs and throw them on the whiteboard and see how would you do it differently? Explore that idea or even build something small, test out different architectures and ideas and learn from that. So you give yourself 
like that opportunity to practice that skill because you won't get it at work all the time. And I think that gives you a more holistic and broader outlook in terms of, well, first accepting the decisions that are made for by people before you, but also knowing that when an opportunity comes where you can make that decision, you have an inventory of ideas that you can draw from that aren't just necessarily inspired by the decision makers before you. So you can actually put your thought into it. I think there's uh, like if you want to like grow or your experience in your career quickly, put yourself in opportunities to make decisions where you can fail and learn from them and stick around long enough to learn from them. Uh, otherwise, uh, you sort of follow other people's decisions and you can learn from that. You can definitely learn from that and learn how to poke holes in it. Uh, but when when you ha- when you're on the whiteboard and they're asking you to come up with a system and it, now it's your turn to decide, it's nice if you've had a chance to think about different ways you would do things, even if they never materialize to real code. Mm-hmm. And I mean that kind of gets us to uh, uh, another piece of deliberate practice. Uh, so you you talk about poking holes in a the design. There's the concept of capture the flags, um, which you see a little more in the security industry. And the idea is right. You are presented with an insecure or inefficient system. Now break it so that you can get the the flag that's inside, um, which is usually just a string that's well defined uh, for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. I love this on, on so many different levels. I'll let you speak to it though first, David. Go ahead. Oh, I think the world of capture the flags um, because in the sense of in that, there's many different ways you can approach a problem, but when you're doing a variety of capture the flags, it can stretch you in lots of different directions. And unlike something like, uh, you know, build this class, it's sort of a different muscle. And your experience, actually, it's a little harder to fake your way through a CTF, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, you can certainly understand a way of going about things. It's interesting because it puts you in the aggressive posture, right, as a, as a developer, where you're aggressively attacking something and breaking through, uh, mm-hmm. versus I think the majority of us probably listening to this, at least, are typically in the defensive posture, where mm-hmm. we're writing code that, <laughs> fingers crossed, isn't prone to hacking. Um, yeah. But how do you know that unless you've spent a little bit of time being on the aggressive side? where you are trying to break in. And, and I think that's where CTF helps you think about things. Like if you can't break in, uh, there's, you can't fake it. <laughs> that's yeah. not what you're saying. Yeah. In the same way that I think being a good editor helps you be a good writer. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah and vice yeah. versa. Being able to antagonize a design. Yeah. Um, think about it critically. Thinking about it critically. It has a way of helping you avoid weaker designs in that design process almost instinctually. Yeah, um, and it, it helps like elevate the level of awareness in your organization as well as the level of discussion on a merge request or pull request. Actually, this is triggering a thought I just had recently was I was asked to review some code, uh, a merge request from uh, individual, another part of the company, which I think is part is like one of the great things of this organization is that you can get review from just different people in the organization. And there was a line of code or a couple lines of code that I was kind of stuck on. This code was Ruby code, and it was using a part of the Ruby reflection API to turn a string into a Ruby constant. Now, I couldn't quite see where the string was coming from. So I had to ask, is this user input? 
And yes, but it's been, you know, taken care of outside of here ahead of time. Oh, <laughs> and I'm no. like, is it possible that we could actually turn this into some form of like remote code execution, right? Because we're allowing user input string to turn into a Ruby constant. What if I can actually load a specific constant I'm not supposed to touch and execute that? And so having a little bit of experience on the aggressive side makes it a lot easier to ask that question, especially if you can provide like an example of like, here's what the, you know, carefully crafted URL with a query string parameter called source uh, <laughs> could look like that could actually, uh, you know, trigger that particular indirect or unnecessary, uh, unnecessary vulnerability. It's harder, I think, to raise that question when you haven't had the opportunity to actually do it because you might think, oh, I don't actually know if this is possible, so I'm not going to ask or I'm not going to say it versus, uh, yeah, you've seen it, you've done it because it was one of the CTF things you've done and seen. Uh, and I think that just, again, just asking that question and discussion, discussing those sorts of things in a merge request or pull request raises the level of awareness and knowledge in an organization. So I love that idea of like deliberately practicing breaking in because we are, you know, constantly deliberately practicing uh, defensive maneuvers, but we can't be defensive unless we know what different attacks look like. Mm -hmm. And there's so many ways that an attacker can approach something. And as software gets more and more pushed to the cloud, these attacks are not theoretical. Um, if you ever check your server logs, you see that there's oh, yeah. scripts PhD just spraying <laughs> everything. Like, yeah. it's noisy. And once you've seen that, once you realize what you're up yeah. against, yeah. you you realize you need to know what they know because that's how you can stay one step ahead. Um, yeah. And how how to be better at programming defensively. And, the, you know, the, likely we're never going to be a step ahead of uh, adversaries or attackers, but at least we can be close enough that we can reduce the opportunity for that to happen. And I think like a side effect of the CTF is, is it implicitly raises your understanding of, of computers and computer programming in general, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just be having to stop. And I don't know how many times if you have to crack open Wikipedia just to understand a concept. <laughs> I have to do it all the time and realize I know nothing. Uh, and it's an amazing thing to know you know nothing, but now you have something to look up and learn. For things like getting really good at using GDB for debugging? Uh, yes. Like doing a, a what's called a crack me, where you, essentially you're giving a, given a binary and you have to figure out how to get the flag. That is an excellent way to learn how to use GDB, where there is a an end goal and you, you can't fake your knowledge of GDB to get through there. Like you, in the process, you have to learn how a system call is generated. You yeah. have to learn how to um, figure out what's going on at the assembly level. Uh, so in, in the sense of you can't, you can't really copy and paste your idea. I mean, again, I guess you can you copy and paste into a CTF, but in the end, you're only cheating yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's you interesting. You don't end because, up in a Stack Overflow mindset of just, oh, well, yeah. there's got to be some way of dealing with this. I, I think that was, I've heard that term as like microwave or popcorn culture where you want the answer now, uh, <laughs> right? I need the answer now so I can just move forward. I just want to watch my, my popcorn movie. And those sorts of things take time because for you to do well, let's say with that example with the binaries, like, well, you do have to take some time to understand uh, the different types of binaries that are out there from portable executables to ELF to Mako. You have to be able to understand, uh, like, is it statically linked, dynamically linked? You have to learn how to assemble this using different tools and what tools are out there. And those tools, in my experience, have actually been helpful in debugging issues in production settings. 
with like uh, even just like for web development. Uh, and then, you know, learning, knowing how to run S trace on a process and see what syscalls it's making. Uh, you would think maybe this isn't something that you would do on a regular basis, but when you're, you know, MySQL daemon is locked up and you can't figure out where it's what it's doing and where it's going. You know, sometimes you do have to drop down to to S trace to see where it's uh, bottlenecking it. And knowing that these tools exist is nice. It's it, it's confidence building because then when you're stuck, you're like, okay, I think there's a tool like OBJ dump where I might be able to use that to do like a dump of the binary we could figure. And just knowing that you can draw on this inventory of tools because you've had a little bit of exposure to it is a powerful feeling just <laughs> to me. It's deliberate. Like when you're yeah, when you're yeah. working through this, your your mind is ideally just on that task where if you're doing this as sort of a job, you know, I mean, you can definitely do a lot of really impressive things in in your work, but it, it's a slightly different mindset. Um, yeah, it's it, empathy it's, on a different level. You're not it's this time you're empathizing with the person who might want to potentially harm your software <laughs> and not necessarily the customer. But you're empathizing with the customer as well because you're you're recognizing that, well, you want to protect them and in order for them to be able to use your software in a safe and, and useful way, you have to understand how someone might be uh, taking advantage of them and sending them carefully crafted URLs or what have you. And that exposure alone informs your understanding of what to possibly consider, like playing with HTTP refer. Oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> playing with things like just an HTTP level or or just poke and learning how to poke at something from the outside and the different ways you could poke it. and uh, And it makes you curious about how all these things work how does the internet work how is it that you and i could be uh transmitting this data over some proprietary protocol that's built by skype and have this like <laughs> near real-time conversation and how can that be um utilized for or abused for nefarious reasons mm -hmm. that curiosity uh, is so critical because i mean i don't really just want to talk all about the the blog post i just did but the, I do. I, I do. Let's uh, talk about it. <laughs> well, I've noticed that there's a plateau of adequacy that's yeah. involved in any job. So let's say you start a job at a new company and you have to learn this language. You have to, oh, you got to learn this bug tracker. You got to learn how to use Git, for example. There's all these things you learn. Yeah. But at a certain point, you can actually just do your job. Right. Um, and if if you're not pushing yourself outside of your work, you stay at that level of adequate, which is fine until you have to go to the next job, um, in which case then you learn a whole bunch of tools. And I think some people skip jobs fairly frequently just because they find that is a way to get that exposure. Mm -hmm. um, but it also feels like there's got to be a better way than just changing jobs every few years. Um, yeah. Certainly there's... There's there are some benefits to sticking around to a place for a while, but um, yeah, I think like some of the benefits of sticking around with a place is that you get to learn from the decisions that were made. And if you jump around too often and you get into positions where you get to make the decisions, but you're not around long enough to understand the consequences of those decisions, then you're not really learning. You're just making guesses as to whether or not these decisions are actually uh, beneficial or what the consequences of those decisions are, etc. Um, so I think it's in some capacity when you've made a decision about something, whether or not you stay with the org or the team or elsewhere, somehow maintain a lifeline to that team so you can still understand, uh, okay, so what's going on? Like, did these decisions pan out or they didn't pan out? 
Mm-hmm. Actually, this reminds me of a decision I made that was bad many years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hope it's okay if I share this. I think it is. But um, so back in 2007, uh, I was working with a group of um, individuals. So it was Adam, Joel, myself, and uh, Lou, uh, three devs, one manager. We were building this thing called eCompliance. And eCompliance is still around today. They've gone through two private acquisitions. But at that time, it was just the three of us. And I remember when we started building it, um, we had to build this web component. And the web component meant some form of account management, which meant that you needed to be able to register for an account. You need to be able to create a password and save the password and store the password in the database. Now, at that time, I was 23 years old. And we all knew that plain text passwords in the database was a non-starter, at least I'm pretty sure we all did. There was some conversation about like we should use some form of encryption so we can like uh, encrypt the password and sort in the database. We can decrypt it. I think I pushed back hard enough that taught us like we I knew we weren't supposed to do that. We were supposed to use a one way hash. So I guided us toward the one way hash. But my failure was I didn't choose a good one way hash. I chose MD5 without any salt. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was a decision that I made in, you know, in honestly. It was for the best reasons because I wanted to protect passwords using a one-way hash that are hard to reverse, but I didn't know enough about the strength of hash algorithms, how to protect them from future, uh, as CPUs get faster and faster, how to protect them from being future protected, how to introduce things like salt so that it's hard to create rainbow tables. And that was a mistake that I made that, thankfully, I, I kept in touch with some of the people at that organization. So years later, when when it came up that, like, okay, it's time for us to move off of MD5 hashes, and switch to something else. Um, they came back to me and asked me, what would you do today if you were to start over? And I said, I'd look at Argon 2 or Bcrypt. At least with Bcrypt, you could specify the computational complexity. So you could set it to 10 now or 12 and increase the, the number of cycles to be able to uh, generate the hash. And so I, I had the fortune of making that mistake, but also being able to be in, in sync with that organization so I could still learn from it and not just walk away and say, hi, I knew what I was doing. I, I'm I feel terrible for that mistake, and I'm sure I've made mistakes that I, I wasn't aware of because I didn't stay in touch or didn't wasn't around long enough to learn from them. But I'm glad in this case that, that I got to, and I'm very sorry. And and I can say eCompliance today does not use MD5 uh, MD5 hashes, uh, <laughs> so so that's been handled years ago. That's been handled. Uh, in case anyone's wondering. So, Mo, how how do you go about making sure that you don't just know something, but you actually really, truly understand it. Uh, I think there's a few things that have helped me. Um, there's this book that was suggested to me uh, many years ago called The Way of the Warrior. It's about like the beginner's mindset. And so always maintaining the beginner's mindset. And the, one of the things that I remember from it is like, if you bring a cup that's full of tea, it's hard for the master to pour more tea into it. So you have to maintain enough room in that cup so that they could give you more tea, right? So you can receive more information. You have to be open to new information and new ideas. And what I've realized is that early in my career, I used to hold it against myself that I was so inexperienced, that I didn't know all these things. I was so new. And now I look back and I realize, wow, that new, that novelty, that unknown, being new and fresh to something, you don't get that for very long. It runs out, right? And then it takes your, you know, you get the baggage of experience things that have worked and it becomes much harder for you to ask those naive questions because you've sort of solidified these ideas in your mind that this is how you do things. Like for example, that TDD is the way to write software. And so for me, I think like that's what it's so refreshing to be around 
the next generation of technologists and be asked the naive questions. Because those naive questions, if I think deeply enough about them, it helps me challenge my assumptions. And if I can't form an articulate response to it, then it might be something that I need to re-explore or be open to changing or be open to thinking about in terms of like improving or allowing for more tea in my cup. <laughs> and that's something that I, I sort of built for myself a few years ago. We call it read, write, execute, where uh, just on a daily basis, I have to have something to read. I have to have something to write and I have to execute on something. So reading comes in the form of maybe reading a blog post, might come in the form of reading a book that's helping me learn a specific skill, might come in the form of like reading some guidance from uh, a man page or something for a tool that I'm interested in. Writing comes in the form of like taking the time to write blog posts. Like blog posts was a great, like writing blog entries on a daily practice. I did that many years ago was a great way for me to just level up my knowledge because having to explain something is a fantastic way to make sure you you know, identify gaps in your knowledge and where you don't have those gaps, you have to go look it up and research it so that you could publish this material on the internet for other people to read. Like that publishing and peer review step uh, is, a, is a great way to identify gaps in your knowledge. But written communication can also be just in the form of like showing gratitude to those that you recognize have helped you in in your path forward because you you know you're not going to do this alone. There's going to be a lot of people in your life that are going to help you and it's up to you to figure out how how to extract that info from them like what can they teach you it's not it's not up to them to just say i'm the authority on this it's up to you to figure out how they can influence you and help you uh, and written communication can also just be writing thoughtful issues or responses in in merge requests or pull requests and then the last thing x like the execute to me is fundamental like it's not enough to just read and talk about certain things you need to actually be practicing. You need to actually be writing code. And so this might be coming in the form of like working on a presentation where you're sharing this knowledge from real experience because that that like building of the presentation is a great time to reflect and retrospect on what you've done and, and think about what you would do differently so you can improve on that next time. But also writing real code. Like I have to write real code. It doesn't have to be uh, the best code. It could be I, I subscribe to this thing called daily tech interviews. Um, and every morning I get a, a tech interview problem in my mailbox. And so if I need something to work on, I pull that problem and I, I start working on it in my language of choice. Usually it's Ruby. So these days it's been going and it just, it, and it sucks when I can't get it to pass. It sucks when I can't figure it out. Like, and hitting that constantly, like that feeling of being overwhelmed with challenge. Like I'm like, I, I just can't figure this out. What do I do? It forces me to go look at things, um, and, and stick with it. Sometimes it could just be like I've been working on the side project called Spandex for a while. I want to learn about lock files and packages and package systems. So most recently, I like figured out the uh, if you look at any Alpine instance that uses APK, there is a slash lib slash uh, APK slash DB slash installed file. And this file is just a text file that's a line by line based file that tells you here's the, all the packages that are installed on the system. And so I just wrote a little parser for it so I could say here's the names and the versions. Uh, and so just a deliberate practice of finding these small problems, toy code, writing it, experimenting it and throwing it away. Um, if you can find projects that are more long lived, like actually shipping a website, for example, where you own the code, uh, you could push it to an actual server, you can read the logs and see the bots on the internet trying to take your host down. Um, and also being able to serve real customers like that sort of feedback I think it is super valuable in terms of like giving you confidence, experience in different situations or enough of it so that you can draw upon it 
and amplify that uh, or continue to build on top of that should uh, something in your work life or other areas of your life demand more of that skill from you. And over time, you get exposed to all these things that you know nothing about, but at least you have some cursory understanding. And then when you need to deep dive, um, that's that's more like, I don't know. I don't know if I have enough guidance on like longer term goals. That's maybe an area I need to work on. I tend to focus on the daily. I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have a, a daily practice. I, I've actually really liked that idea of read, write, executing. Yeah, um, I love it. It's just it sticks with me. It reminds me of Linux and it reminds me what's my R for today? What's my X for today? I kind of have something a little similar to that. Many, many years ago, thankfully, very early in my career, um, someone had told me, and I, I think it was from a blog article, something like that, of try to read one tech book a month. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the idea of just think of it as like you're adding 100 bucks to your paycheck every every tech book you read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of took that to heart. And that's a practice I've, I've kept now for, I want to say, a decade. Mm-hmm. Um but it absolutely does build on that. And at the very least, it, it always sort of pushes you to look at something new because you don't want to keep reading the same book over and over and over. You don't want to read right. like 30 books on Ruby. Um, Just like you don't want to repeat the same year of experience over and over and over again. You could have 20 years of experience, but if you're repeating the same year over and over, it's not too many unique years of experience, right? So. Someone uh, with less years of experience may actually have more broader experience and be exposed to more problem sets and therefore be able to be able to jump in with a little more bravery and know that they don't know, but also know that they can learn and they can make enough progress on a day to day basis that uh, I would go with the person who's (laughs) who is brave, but also responsible over the person who's been doing things the same way over and over again. I guess it depends on the role as well, too. I, I mean, for the writing practice. I, I've been trying to keep a, a developed diary uh, going. Uh, yeah, it's it's sporadic these days, um, but not not because uh, because I don't enjoy it. Uh, I actually really do. But I, I've just found, especially this year, life does get in the way of a, a daily writing practice. But I'm always writing notes to myself. Anyone who's seen my desk knows it's just a stacks of paper and <laughs> it, it's. It's a little unwieldy. Um, and then the execute part, that one, you know, I've I've been doing katas, I've been doing koans, but it's only been this year I've really tried to focus on sort of code competitions and capture the flags. Um, and some of this was also just, it was how I sort of spiced up actually doing things because you don't want to just keep writing uh, yeah. Yeah. Roman numeral to... Uh, to English language converters all all the time. It, I think I, I get what you're saying. It's like if you're if you're doing the small problems daily, you get stretched a little bit. Like you you get exposure to all these small problems, but you also need a little bit more longevity sometimes with a problem. You need to stick with certain problems long enough that you can get the full experience of learning it from from rather than just a cursory level. So it's like. There'll be times in your life where you spend more time reading because you need to get up to speed at a certain base level before you can actually make intelligent decisions. And then there might be more times like after you sort of finish that reading season, you'll go deeper into more execution and and get in there and make mistakes. And then I think there's like it's high and low, right? Sometimes you just want to go outside and cycle, right, David? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) And that just might be listening to podcasts or something. And that's that's your that's your moment of, of learning and growing. 
And also, it's very easy to think that you have an adequate feedback loop, where, oh, which yeah. is stretching you, um, or That's or that like, point. oh, I you know I can I can do all these katas, and yeah, you can, but are are you actually trying new tools in the process? So mm-hmm. you talked about the baggage of experience. Mm-hmm. One way that's manifested for me is that for a very long time, Python was my daily driver. And that was the case up to Python 2.7. Now, any listener who uh, has three used Python three. knows that <laughs> the Python 2.7 to 3 move, I mean, now it's it's great. But yeah. that was a really ugly few years. And I found so much personal code that just broke all of a sudden. And I didn't, I didn't really have the the heart or the willpower to just go back and fix all that stuff. So I just rewrote it in Ruby or in Go or whatever. But now, As a public I, service, we should also say 2.7 died this year. So if you're still on Python 2, it's end of life. Get off of Python 2. Yep, it's gone. Forget about it. I have. We've all moved on now. And the world's better. <laughs> the but world's the baggage better. of experience is, okay, so I was very into Python. And then I walked away for several years um, and, you know, like I would fix the occasional script down around work, like because uh, in some sense, Python two to three, it's OK, well, print is now a function sort of deal. But it, it wasn't until recently I said, OK, I need to relearn Python and the baggage of experiences that's meant unlearning some yeah. of Python 2.7. Unlearning. And uh-huh. one thing that. Oh, man. Ever since I found it, uh, I've been having fun rewriting a bunch of code to use it. In Python 3.6, they added a, um, a formatted string interpolation. Um, it, it's really nice. It's, it actually kind of reminds me of Ruby. And so you don't have to use uh, format. You don't have to use the um, percentage sign. It, it's a lot easier to read. Like, that came with time. But now that's yeah. there, it feels so natural. Right. So the baggage of experience for me is I knew Python. I stopped. The world moved on. Yeah. And I I, I have to essentially learn Python again. And there's a bunch of things which were the way to do it that are now they are deprecated or they're gone. Mm Um, that, that idea of unlearning, uh, I think, is fantastic. I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm finding myself at this point in my career is like I, I'm, I have to take a critical look at the things I need to unlearn, uh, things that I've been doing implicitly without actively thinking about it. Like uh, an example is this idea around my, my relationship with Agile, right? Like I've been practicing iterative development for many years, um, but processes come and go. And so I need to be open to different types of processes. You know, some processes actually heavily favored a synchronous environment where you could all be in the, in the same office. And those ideas uh, maybe don't, you know, work as well in this asynchronous world where, uh, you know, 2020, we have uh, the pandemic occurring right now and we are working from home. So learning to identify those things to unlearn actually could it, I, actually, now that I'm thinking about this, I should actually make that a deliberate practice to say, what are some things I need to unlearn? Uh, maybe I've spent too much time with Vim, and it's time for me to give it up and try VS Code. And maybe there's a lot of opportunity to learn in other things that I'm I'm not getting because of, of those things that 
I've carried with me for so long. (laughs) Don't change. Yeah, I I think unlearning is it's a very hard skill. I I don't know if there's a way to uh, gamify unlearning. (laughs) It's kind of like feature deprecation. You know, when you've had a product that's been running for long enough, sometimes you've got these features that are just there that cater to like a really small audience that it might even be cheaper just to like kill the feature than to keep it alive and, and maintain it. So in a way, like unlearning is like identifying those things that we think we know or the, the things that we hold to be true and letting them go or rewinding them. I don't know how I'd like gamify that, David, like mm-hmm. measure it somehow, get a youngster, get a youngster to tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> Can someone please tell me what I need to unlearn? Uh, do I need to unlearn OO and testing and do this functional thing? Uh, the closest I've gotten to gamifying, and I guess this is not even really a good game, but uh, I've been trying to do uh, what are called Feynman notebooks um, after Richard Feynman, the physicist, where mm-hmm. he would write a subject at the top of a page and then write down everything he'd know and just really try to um, find all the parts where he was weak. But I've also been trying to put what is the state of the art now? Because some things don't move. Math doesn't really move, which is nice. Um, right. But things like Python move. Things like agile practices move. Just finding a whole lot of stuff that it turns out that was actually the, the ground was unstable. And I wasn't aware of that. But I, I think that's that's more of a hazard for for programming than it would be for mathematics or for physics, where you're dealing with the, you know, the nature of the universe versus uh, the nature of whatever humans say is the thing that's fashionable right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, chasing fashion. That's a whole different conversation, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe maybe in a future episode, we'll, we'll talk about uh, the various fashion trends and how to how to tell whether or not you're actually in a fashion trend, because I've. I've, How do I know when I'm in the Matrix, David? Am I in the Matrix? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen it now. I, I think this is a, we're, we're talking about the benefits of hanging in there for a long period of time. Once you've been in the industry for X amount of years, you sort of realize, wait a sec, I've seen this thing before. <laughs> like, uh, yes. old things yeah, become new. Like right now. Hey, the entire world's going to go to JavaScript, and maybe it will. But what if it doesn't? Maybe it's maybe WebAssembly uh, short circuits it entirely. In which yeah. case, where do we go from there? So there's always going to be things to learn, but it's. I think that's where it's kind of nice to start figuring out uh, in the earlier your career, the better. Which things actually don't move underneath you? Like x86 seemed like a, a sure thing until. Uh, Uh, Now Apple Silicon is faster than Intel (laughs) using uh, ARM. So I've heard this phrase that the only constant is change. And it's um, I think it's a phrase I use often. It's like a reminder to myself that uh, whatever I'm glued to now is likely going to change or whatever I think is good now is likely good. And it also allows me it gives me permission to change what I think. So if I hold something true today. That's how I feel about it today, and I have the freedom to change tomorrow. Uh, this reminds me of a book, actually, that someone recommended to me many years ago. It's called uh, Who Moved My Cheese? Mm. And uh, there's been certain events recently at, uh, I guess, my former employer that just reminded me of that and the importance of like 
being okay with change and embracing change uh, versus resisting change or trying to be defensive against it or try to slow it down through process and, and other sort of defensive mechanism. I find in my career, like embracing change and recognizing that change is like the only constant thing that will I will see in my career has allowed me to be okay with uh, new things coming my way, to be okay with, you know, code being rewritten, to be okay with the things that I don't know, because I can't know what hasn't happened yet. And I can't know what the next trend is and what's going to arrive. But I can, um, I can use my experience and intuition and reflect on my mistakes to help that inform which direction I choose to go. There's going to be the choices that are made by the populace or the, you know, what's in fashion. And then there's going to be choices that I get to make based on uh, what I, I think is maybe a little more timeless. You know, for example, my choice to stick with Nix instead of going back to Windows has uh, has sort of paid off because Windows is now starting to embrace, uh, you know, the Linux subsystem layer, etc. And uh, understanding Unix interfaces. And, and you mentioned x86 architecture. There's a good chance that those things that I hold true be true, like the Unix interface, and that may change over time. But that's cool. Things move on. <laughs> things change. And then they're back again. It's probably time to talk about the things that uh, this episode is brought to you by. One thing I'd, I'd like to talk about is this website called Learn X and Y Minutes. And I have found this really helpful for brushing up on languages that I have forgotten. <laughs> like programming languages or uh, spoken uh, languages? Programming languages in this case. Oh. But uh, yeah, for learning... Uh, I, I've been taking another look at Tickle, which is... Uh, <laughs> that's TCL, right? That's TCL. It's a really... It's almost kind of a lispy language. It was popular in the 90s, <laughs> and then it lost its popularity. And uh, I, I don't want to say it looks like UI. it's poised for a comeback. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that's the case. But um, What about Tickle.net? Maybe there'll be a Tickle.net. Well, there's Tickle.tk. That, that's the official website. Um, but I, I feel like Tickle is um, its one of those languages that it's fun to return to. But because I'm not using it day to day, like it's gone. Or in the case of Python, it was, OK, geez, how do I how do I find out if a key is in a hash? And like when you talk about it of experience, now it's, you know, uh, if key in dict but for a while it was um i recall correctly it was the has key method which now is deprecated so oh. uh yeah see seeing what it is really quickly um basically they're cheat sheets but well formatted cheat sheet so um yeah I, i'd like to recommend that site that sounds amazing i'd like to shout out if possible the analog terminal bell um, oh, what's the analog terminal bell? <laughs> uh, have you ever had that moment where you're, you're typing a command in your terminal, but you don't have a like an audible bell because you're typing the wrong command? Mm-hmm. Well, the analog terminal bell is the solution that you've been looking for. And uh, this analog terminal bell will save you from the embarrassment of staring at your screen and wondering why you typed the wrong command because it provides an audible bell. That sounds when you enter a command incorrectly. It's a fantastic product, and uh, 
I have waited many years for something like this, and it's fundamentally shifted the way that uh, I program and uh, and how I look at uh, well the entire tech industry. So I can't I can't say enough good things about the analog terminal bell, and uh, it's worth every penny. I yeah, it's worth every single penny. We'll uh, post the video of their advertisements uh, on, on our show notes. It, it's definitely worth a watch, and we're not getting paid to say that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, I. this is a fantastic product. Uh, another thing that uh, this episode's been brought to you by is Anki, the flashcard program. I, I don't want to say uh, it's a daily habit for me, because what I find is I'll go months of daily practice and then just forget about my flashcards for months. Um, but it's a pretty useful tool for honestly just remembering all those weird little syntax bits that are easy to forget. So one problem if you're a polyglot of uh, programming languages is, okay, how do you import a function in Python? Well, if you, uh, if you use quotes, that's incorrect. But if you're doing it in Ruby, well, you need the quotes. So just having something that reinforces those sorts of things mm-hmm. um, is really nice. So I there there's definitely there's flashcard decks that you can use. I wouldn't recommend those. I think it's better to make your own cards. But I think the last thing I'd like to suggest that this episode's brought to you by is Pragmatic Thinking and Learning by uh, Andy Hunt and the Prag Press. Uh, I read this book many years ago, and it sort of provided me the steps necessary to understand. Uh, the different layers of learning, right? So there's four different categories of learning. I don't remember them off the top of my head. There's something to the effect of conscious competence, unconscious incompetence, and uh, the variations of that. Uh, But Mm -hmm. understanding, like, when you're learning something new and having prescriptive steps uh, versus when you've got a certain level of competence where you feel confident, but that's because you haven't quite uh, been exposed to the idea that you actually don't know very much, but you're you feel like you can do a lot. So just that book itself, I think, is fantastic in understanding how to learn and identifying uh, what stage you of learning you're at. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point that I sort of wish we uh, touched on a little earlier. Is at a certain point, and as a beginner, you don't know what things you need to be learning about yeah. a subject. Yeah, and if you pick the wrong uh, learning materials, then that can reinforce you th- into thinking that you actually do understand everything. And so Which it does lead to unlearning. <laughs> oh yeah. So it's helpful to always be carrying uh, a bit of humility with you and just assuming that there's more out there and you probably just haven't discovered it yet. Um, recently I've been um, reading uh Brendan Gregg's Systems Performance Volume 2, which just came out this month, I actually think. I've been reading it on uh, O'Reilly's Safari website. And again, it's just stuff that you didn't realize it was there, but now you've found this tool that it's just helpful. And it's always good to have something that mentions something you didn't even realize was a question. And now you have it. I have not read any of Brendan Gregg's books. I have to get through them at some point. I guess one last one. I kind of, I, I think we mentioned it in another episode, but I really do suggest Over the Wire um, as a capture the flag site. That one, I've, I find even just if you do nothing but the first set of exercises called Bandit, you will learn so much about uh, Unix systems. 
I mean, you might get them from, uh, you know, a textbook on how to do do that sort of thing, but it, it reinforces it. It can't help but make you better. Nice. All right, Dave, what do you think? Did we uh, did deliver uh, an amazing episode for the folks out there? Gosh, I hope so. Um, so <laughs> tell us what you think. Um, like if you've uh, if you use a service that allows you to uh, put comments on podcasts, by all means, uh, put something on there. If you love it, if you hate it, let us know, because um, we're, we're always curious about your feedback. And any good quotes to end this episode on, Mo? I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm always hungry. <laughs> uh, it's good to be hungry. Do we have an end line? I forget what our tagline is. Do we have one? Uh, well, I feel like the tagline from this episode is we don't understand the uh, any future trends. <laughs> we don't <laughs> we know, know nothing. We know. So we may not have anything worth listening to. Yeah, we're, we're trying our best. <laughs> yeah. Most definitely. Cool. Well, I guess until next time. Have a until great day. Until next Dave. time. Talk to you later. Bye. Uh,